Hello and welcome to episode 21 of the Tactical Guitarist Podcast, the show that brings you insights, stories, wisdom, and anything else useful to help you become more tactical with your own lives in guitar. Today I'm speaking with guitarist and scholar Candice Mowbray. Candice is one of the hardest working guitarists I know, so I was eager to talk with her about her career and her career choices, her advice, all kinds of stuff. Before we get into it, I just want to talk briefly about the Tactile Guitarist show and some other things going on in relation to it. If you like the show, I encourage you to subscribe to it either through iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play, and it's also available through the Tactile Guitarist website. Uh, you can support the podcast by clicking on the support button on the website, and thank you to those who have done that. Uh, this show is free, and I want to keep it that way, but it doesn't come without a cost, including hosting it, uh, editing paying fees for recording services, stuff like that. It's a labor of love, but every, every sign of support is greatly appreciated. Another way to help is by leaving a review if you listen to it on iTunes. The more reviews, the more visibility the show gets, which means it can reach more guitarists who might be interested in what we have going on here. And finally, if you're interested in going beyond just the podcast, the Tactical Guitarist has more to offer now. You can find out more about special courses, coaching and the tactical guitar academy membership over at the website uh, that's tacticalguitarist.com and i love hearing from you guys so if you ever want to reach out shoot me an email or find me on instagram twitter and facebook uh, i tend to chime in a lot on the facebook group so if you haven't joined there come check it out okay on with today's show regarded for her beautiful tone and lyrical playing Maryland-based classical guitarist Candice Mowbray shares the expressive and communicative qualities of her playing through programs of modern and classic works. From playful acrobatics and works by French guitarist virtuoso Ida Presti, to the elegance and solemnity of Fernando Sor's Fantasie Allégique, listeners enjoy her artful programming and thoughtful interpretations. Appearing as a soloist, chamber musician, and guest lecturer, Mowbray has been a featured artist for festivals and concert series in Philadelphia, Toronto, Washington, D.C., Baltimore, and Los Angeles. She has performed with ensembles such as Washington National Opera at the Kennedy Center, Maryland Symphony Orchestra, National String Symphonia, and Pro Art Chamber Orchestra of Greater Washington. Her recent solo CD, Reverie, has been featured on radio shows such as In Tune, BBC Radio 3, uh, The Intimate Guitar, G-Strings with Tom Cole, and Musica Mundi. Classical Guitar Magazine calls the release a revelation and one of the top 10 CD picks of the year. Mowbray earned the Doctorate of Musical Arts in Classical Guitar Performance from Shenandoah Conservatory in Virginia and has taught courses in music and appreciation of the broader humanities at Shenandoah Conservatory, Hagerstown uh, Community College, and several other colleges and schools of music in the Mid-Atlantic region. She also enjoys research and giving talks about music, which have been described as enthusiastic and insightful. And you can find out more about Candice at her website. That's www.candicemobry.com. And I'll leave a link to that in the show notes, as you can also find it on my website. Uh, you're going to want to take notes on this one. We cover a lot of angles regarding career choices, including scholarly work and working at festivals, amongst other things. Candice is a tactile guitarist through and through, and you're going to hear how throughout this entire episode. And now I bring you Candace Mowbray. I am here with Candace Mowbray. Did I say that right? Yes, you did. Thank you for coming on the show, Candace. So glad to get to talk to you. It's been a while. Yeah, it has been a while. You and I know each other. We've known each other for almost 10 years now, I think. Um, we met at a festival in, jeez, uh, it was like Lake Tahoe, right? We went right, we Sierra Nevada. Yeah. And uh, we've kept in touch ever since and sort of followed each other's careers and um, just chimed in every now and then. So I've, I've been meaning to get you on the show because um, of how hard you work at everything. And I think you're one of the, a perfect sort of specimen or candidate to have on the show and talk about what you do and, and uh, how you get by in your career. So thanks for uh, agreeing to do it. I'm thrilled to be on the show and I'm a fan of the show. So it makes it even better. <laughs> Awesome. Awesome. Um, let's start off like I always do. I want, I want to hear your story, your backstory about how you got started. Um, you know, what, what, what brought you to the guitar? Was it a calling? Did just somebody throw it in your hands and say, here, you need to learn this? What was it like? Well, 
I definitely wanted to be a rock star. So we can, we can just start with that. Yeah, I started, right. I, um, I'm a rock star in my own mind, but anyway, uh, I started out playing clarinet and oboe when I was a kid and I didn't start playing guitar until I was 13. And that would have been in the late eighties, early nineties, uh, the height of the hair band era. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, so I started out as an electric guitar player and, um, that era soon, you know, molded into, you know, the grunge movement and me just getting more and more into heavier rock and, um, as well as indie rock. And, um, but at the same time I was really, really studious and my high school had music theory as a class. So I had three or four years of actual music theory study before I even end up in college. Um, and then I went to, uh, you know, played in a, in a punk band in high school, not a very good one. Um, and, uh, no frills, no frills. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we tried to play songs by operation Ivy and minor threat, but we weren't nice. particularly good. Yeah. We mostly just hung out to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> and then, um, I went to community college first because, um, I actually wasn't planning on being a music major. Um, my senior year in high school, I had enough credits where I actually got to leave half a day and I went to work in a bank. And so when I went to college, my plan, uh, even though I was a liberal arts major, was really probably to become an accountant. And, uh, but, you know, you find your people. And yeah. I found the music department and the theater department. And before I knew it, I was a music major and um, the four-year school that was local, um, I didn't have a lot of resources and, or at least, um, you know, really didn't think I could leave the area. And, um, the school where I was going to transfer, you played both jazz and classical guitar. So I didn't actually own or touch a classical guitar till I was 20 and, um, wow. got accepted. Yeah. And I, I say, I didn't get really serious about practicing classical guitar until even later than that. Um, I mean, really, uh, I was yeah. technically a music composition major. And um, although I spent more time playing guitar than I did writing things, uh, but we did both. We studied electric guitar uh, in the jazz realm and then uh, classical guitar as well. We had this wonderful teacher who was a, a real working musician, DC Union um, kind of guy. And I really credit him with helping me learn how to make a living with my instrument. Hmm. And uh, so he, a guy named Jerry Kunkel to this day, like actually needed advice. And I called him <laughs> a few months ago and he was very gracious and listening to me. So yeah. that's kind of how I got into things and got my four-year degree. And then you um, your, so your degree was in composition. Yeah. Music composition. Okay. But I had fulfilled the requirements for performance. They had a leveled system where you had to get, um, a proficiency of a level six if you were a composition major on your instrument, but mm -hmm. a level eight if you wanted to be a performance major. And um, like I practiced hard and, and made it, I think, to the, the higher level of that. And then um, when I graduated, I uh, went to work, you know, teaching private lessons and um, gigging. You know, I had a, a wedding flute and guitar group. And, uh, you know, it was just working, doing restaurant jobs and um, kind of doing the thing that I understood a working musician to be at that level. And then I um, went to a guitar festival, actually National Guitar Workshop. Oh, yeah. And I wasn't sure if I wanted to go for the Jazz Summit or the Classical Summit. I signed up for the Classical Summit, I actually visited, you know, both parts of that workshop and uh, realized that. I really didn't compare, you know, to the other classical guitar players there. Like my world was just a bit more limited and I had to decide, you know, uh, do I really want to focus on this and go forward with this and start working towards uh, concert playing? And, and I decided to, I came home, got some private lessons um, with a local classical teacher, uh, went back to NGW the next year, did a little better 
and then realized, okay, I want to do this. And I auditioned for Shenandoah Conservatory to start a master's program in classical guitar performance. Wow. Yeah. And that's where I met Dr. Glenn Kaluta, who basically changed my life. And um, I'm so grateful for him uh, for, you know, the technical understanding, the uh, interpretive understanding, but just also the history. He was really a proponent of us understanding things on a really deep level. And um, he really built that enthusiasm in me for researching and, and really understanding the history of the music I was playing in. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and that, that translates later because you did, you've, you've been working, you've been researching and doing things uh, since we'll get into that sure. later. Cause I want to, I want to do want to talk about that. So you, you went to Shenandoah and you, you did your master's, but you also did your, your doctorate there, right? Yeah, I finished the master's in 2003 and um, didn't have plans of uh, doing a doctorate. Um, and like I said, I was gigging, maybe doing some small chamber music recitals, not really much solo recital work, but gigging a lot and teaching quite a bit. And I had gotten my first opportunity to teach in a college. And um, it as, actually wasn't for guitar lessons. It was for teaching music appreciation, which is, you know, like music history, but um, for non-majors, kind of a right. not as in-depth uh, version of music history. And um, more opportunities came along that way. The following year, uh, I taught for a second community college at the same time and um, eventually a university and before I knew it, I was teaching for five <laughs> different schools simultaneously. And it was a mix of music appreciation, music fundamentals. Um, I often would get hired to teach guitar because in addition to playing, having the classical credentials, I did play electric guitar. And because I started as an electric guitar player, like I could relate to the incoming freshmen who didn't have any experience like I didn't, you know? Yeah. I mean, I at least had theory and, and could read music and that, but I meant like I didn't play jazz when I first yeah. entered college and um, certainly didn't play classical guitar. So anyway, um, I was, you know, a flurry of activity uh, and really my goal became getting a full-time teaching job. And I actually um, came up an interview at one of the community colleges, a position came open and I made it to three finalists. And I'd only been teaching in colleges a year or two at that point. And the person who won the position completely deserved it. She had been there 17 years. Um, she's wonderful. She's still the department chair at that school now. Um, but it showed me, well, if you're going to pursue this path, you're probably going to need a doctorate. Mm -hmm. And so within a, just a couple of years, I thought, well, you know, I have all these jobs now. I don't want to give them up. Um, I'll just take a class at a time. You have seven years to do a doctorate, right? Uh, I thought, you know, I'll just chip away. And uh, yeah. that was a Jane's Addiction reference, by the way. But anyway, um, so, <laughs> <laughs> so I'll just chip away at the stone. And yeah, uh, so that started, I guess, I don't even know what year it was. Um, but then as I got into the doctorate, uh, my perceptions of what I was doing changed. How I wanted to teach those classes changed. Um, and I really wanted to fell in love what well, always been in love with my instrument, but realized that I could actually perform and maybe have something to offer. And so in the course of that doctorate degree, my attitude just changed and my goals changed. And, um, and then as the, the thesis part of that and the comprehensive exams and, you know, the degree itself started to intensify as I was finishing some of the coursework. Um, then I started letting go of some of these adjunct positions that I had and uh, really focused on the school part of it, which was the first time in my life that I think I really did that because I had always worked a couple jobs putting myself through school. Yeah. So it was, it was a neat experience to really have school as the center part of what I was doing at the time. And so you finished that up in, in less time then? Uh, I don't, you know, it's, it's funny cause I've been reflecting lately and some of this timeline has just become a blur. 
<laughs> I know when I graduated. I graduated yeah. December 2012. Okay. Uh, so I know that. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's all that matters, really. I mean, as long as you know that you, you finished. <laughs> right, 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 right. And then um, it was interesting. Right after graduation, I thought I would feel this huge relief, you know, like, because it really got pretty intense there at the end. Um, but I didn't because I had all of these projects that I had been telling people, oh, wait till I graduate. I'll wait till I graduate. And then I graduated and guess what? You know, I was playing in a new duo and we had a concert set and then another duo that had been waiting on me since September to step in and start doing that. And then an opportunity for a full-time, remember the thing I wanted so badly before, a full-time temporary lecture position at that community college opened up and um, and it wasn't just teaching music. Um, I had to teach, uh, a human, like, a not an art synthesis, but a class that think music appreciation, but for all of the arts. Mm, yeah. Yeah. So you were teaching about painting and sculpture and architecture and theater and literature and dance wow. and music. All in, it was fascinating because I love all those things, but it took a lot of study. Yeah. So that year after graduating, my point in that is that I still didn't come down. Like it was just straight out of the gates into a whole set of other projects and um, realizing Is that something. Oh, go, oh, ahead. go ahead. Well, just realizing oh. in the midst of all of that, you know, I got that full time job and I'm really glad that I did, although it was temporary. But when it came time to figure out if I wanted to reapply when they opened up the permanent position, I actually decided not to. That was a really hard decision because I thought all that time, this is the goal. This is the goal. Um, although it wasn't really a music job, you know, mind you. But yeah. um, but by that time, you know, between 2010 and 2013, I had changed and really wanted to play concerts and make art. <laughs> so um, and, and so you started, did you start doing more of that? Yeah. Um, I focused on just one or two adjunct teaching jobs. Um uh, namely Shenandoah University, um, where I got to focus on teaching guitar, classical guitar specifically. And, um, and some really fun classes. One of my favorite was guitar for music theater majors. Um, it was just wonderful, like such a vibrant group of people who smiled in class and where I had some really meaningful moments teaching those classes. I got to coach chamber ensemble, uh, guitar and oboe duo, teach guitar pedagogy, um, my teacher, Dr. Kaluta, retired and Julian Gray had come in and I got to work with him for a while and, you know, do things like beyond doctoral auditions and great recitals of, you know, really great playing. And so that was kind of exciting in itself and did allow me a little more flexibility to focus on my own practice and and um, moving into a, a concert life more so than I had before. Like I said, I don't mean like all of a sudden I was trying to play concerts. I'd always been doing that to some extent, but just really um, changing what that meant for myself, if that makes sense. Yeah, sure. Yeah. But, um, so when you started performing, when you started to take on performing more, were you then just doing more engagements with the, the kind of the groups you were already in or were you doing more solo stuff? What were you, what were you going after? Um, everything. <laughs> everything. <laughs> yeah. So was that, a, was that a tactic of yours or was it just like opportunist? You know, you just take whatever you can, you know, we do, what was it like? Well, it's exciting, you know, like you meet great people and they're all different musical personalities and there's all this music that you want the chance to play. So I was working in a steady flute and guitar duet, um, uh, with a really, in fact, I still work with her. I shouldn't say past tense, but this really intelligent, wonderful person who I just like being around, you know, I couldn't believe she'd want to hang out with me. She's so smart, you know, like it was just great to do that and explore all this music. And she plays Japanese shakuhachi flute. So I was learning about a whole different repertoire and, um, and there were lots of performances um, and, you know, there is the the business aspect of it as well. You know, our duo is working. Um, it was interesting and it was working. So that was going. Yeah. 
But then um, I had opportunities to play with, uh, she had a larger chamber group uh, called Satori Chamber Ensemble, and they do a full season of concerts, each with different instrumentations. So I was getting the chance to play, um, you know, Grand Serenade by Diabelli, um, Vivaldi Concerto, Boccherini Quintet, um, Pujol pieces for guitar and string quartet, uh, Jean-Marie Raymond's Twilight Serenade, uh, Giuliani pieces, um, Caroli pieces for trio, just all of this fascinating music. Mm-hmm. Um, so there were those opportunities. I had played uh, briefly in a guitar duo where I got to play 19th century duets with a really good player. Um, I have so many friends who play clarinet or violin or or singers so any of those opportunities like i just wanted to seize them and um you know and i sight read sight reading is kind of my superpower if i have one vain thing i'll say is that uh, i sight read pretty well so sometimes i could learn a lot of repertoire in a fairly short amount of time yeah and so i could do that stuff and uh, it goes a long way. I mean, that's, that's like the, and by no means, by no stretch of the imagination. Do I mean I was sight reading on concerts? I don't mean that. I just meant that, um, yeah. I mean, I was preparing and, and I was learning so much by being with these other musicians, even about rehearsing. Like I remember that first rehearsal I showed up with this particular string quartet, um, after having lots of rehearsals with, you know, guitar quartets or things like that, where somebody in rehearsal will actually count off, you know, like I'm with a string, there's no count off, there's a breath and we're in it and we've never met before. So it was a whole other level of even rehearsing. And I just, I like the growth, like I wanted to do it. So um, it's been exciting. Was this just a plan of yours the whole time? I mean, like from a from a from a from a career standpoint, you know, were you were you like, all right, just gonna go after all this? No, my plan, if I remember myself accurately, was that I wanted a full time teaching job. That was it. Um, that was it. Yeah, and, you know, part of it is there's so many phenomenal players in the world just one after the next, they're just incredible. And um, I guess I didn't believe myself to be of that level of contribution. And, um, and I love teaching and I loved preparing lectures and um, that's just where my heart was, I guess. Yeah. And um, so all of this just, it was the, it was that doctorate. Let me tell you, it just changed what I thought I wanted to do. I still wanted to teach, don't get me wrong, but I wanted to play and actually um, was developing some, you know, confidence in in the idea that I had something to offer. Well, it seems to have worked because you're, I mean, I follow you on Facebook and Instagram and you're, you know, I see these like these dates pop up of your upcoming performances and they're just, it seems like there's just perpetually there you know just a more more dates and and that kind of um that kind of steady rhythm or work you know work to uh to get is somewhat uh, um uh, what's the word you know coveted by guitarists and i guess what i'm getting you know i'm curious like what's been your strategy to continue getting all these kinds of great concerts and and you know finding more opportunities well it, i think it's a little complicated um, I will say th- that one aspect of that question is what makes a person just motivated. And yeah. I spend time around some pretty motivated people. And, um, 
you know, their influence, seeing how hard other people work, um, not just in music, but in, in all things. And feeling the obligation to work hard is, is just part of it. Like, that's just what you do. And, uh, you know, I've been kind of, I won't go into this, but reflecting just on life and upbringing and circumstances and, you know, what gives us inner drive is kind of a a complicated issue. Um, And to what point is it maybe even too much? Um, So when you say about having a rhythm, actually, I feel like I'm in perpetual motion a little bit and trying to find, (laughs) maybe trying to find a measure of rest here and there to keep the analogy. But, um, But it's all been great and I'm thankful for it. But now how do I get how does the work happen? It's, it's a combination of things. Um, I am a small business and an aspect of being a small business is marketing and, um, marketing doesn't just mean, you know, reaching out to people asking for performances, but I spend a lot of time trying to have a good website, trying to have good photos, you know, um, revising things. When I have downtime, I'm rewriting things. Um, I do a lot of that kind of administrative work for myself. And I'm sure other people do too, but just in case, you know, somebody doesn't realize it, you know, um, like I'm going to give a lecture and the library wants me to do the write-up and that write-up I know is what will be printed in their press releases. Yeah. So there, there's that kind of work. And um, there is also, you know, having together a PR pack and doing some cold calling, researching where there are concert series, reaching out to people personally. And, um, you know, not just some blanket email, but like actually reaching out, finding out what their series is, um, telling them how you learned about it and what you have to offer. Uh, and that takes a lot of time, but I also keep organized about it. For a while, I was actually keeping a, a weekly schedule of what I was going to do in office hours each day. And, you know, sure. maybe Monday morning or Tuesday morning was the the reaching out day. And I have a ledger and I keep track of who I talked to, how I reached them and what the result was. And um, I mean, really, that kind of proactive organized, uh, I think has been one benefit of it, but it's not the sole source of the work. I also for years have been working with flute players and clarinet players and, um, you make a team of it and, you know, they can schedule concerts in, in their contacts in their world. And you can reciprocate, uh, with the series that, you know, so there's that. I also get thankfully recommended, um, you know, and uh, so it's it's a complex network of things that lead to all of that work. But ultimately, at the end of the day, uh, I think it's then your professionalism. Like once you've gotten the gig, have you done the preparation? Were you truly prepared for the rehearsal? Did you come with your music, you know, taped and bound in a book? And, you know, basic stuff like that. Did you truly practice it so that the rehearsal is about rehearsal of the ensemble, not rehearsal of you, unless you just have a tricky spot? Um, The the humility in working with other people and hearing their ideas, you know, personality kind of things, ultimately, just who you really are is either going to resonate or not. And um, if you resonate well, then you get recommended. So you're, it sounds like in a lot of ways, and I, I, re- I think I relate to this a lot, the, there's a kind of DIY ethic instilled in you and oh, um, yeah. this, self, this idea of self-reliance and, and can, you know, doing stuff yourself that um, I, for a lot of us, it comes with the territory. It's part of, part of being a musician. Not everybody can immediately or or want to um pay for you know publicity or publicist or a manager or booking agents those kinds of things because it's very expensive and and you're you know at the end of the day you're kind of handing over a lot of control to other people which it has its benefits too but having that kind of self do you think that that 
that's where that comes from for you, where, you know, you're, you're able to persevere in a way because you've got these, these sort of uh, DIY ethics that come from, it sounds like if, if I'm, if I'm reading you right, because I have these, uh, this kind of experience was I was, you know, in punk bands and played band in rock bands and stuff. And I started an electric guitar um, when I was a kid and, you know, in that community, we just learned to do everything ourselves. Right. You know, you, you, you drew work. the flyer and you, photo, right. you know, like physically, I was thinking about this recently and I bet I have some of those flyers tucked away somewhere that, um, yeah, that's what you did. And like, you would get a group of bands together and you would rent, I didn't do this, but when I was a kid, this is the kind of shows I went to. Um, you rented a hall, you know, like yeah. a Kiwanis hall or Wakahoo Grange hall is what it was called here. And you made a poster and you passed them out to every kid in your school or whatever and charged yeah. five bucks at the door. And at the end of the night, the band split the money. Actually, yeah. there's probably nothing. They just had to pay the hall and insurance. Right. Um, <laughs> you know I mean? like, so I was exposed to that from the earliest days of, of guitar. Um, but then even before that, just, you know, my kind of family situation, it was a, a do it yourself kind of work hard ethic. Yeah. So yeah, I'm with you, but I do think that punk rock or alt rock or hardcore or whatever, um, it does, I think, affect and give you a, that's a great way to put it, a DIY um, personality. The the smart thing is though, when, when you get to a point and you realize, well, maybe I shouldn't be doing certain things for myself anymore, you know? Yeah. Um, have you, have you come to the, any of those roads yet? The best things I ever did was have a, you know, professional photographers do pictures for me. Yeah. Yeah. Serious. Cause I tried with a camera and um, like my first CD, we took that picture at the park and I think it turned out fine. Um, you know, a scenic place. Um, but then later getting somebody to help with that kind of stuff. And yeah, certain things that you just a professional was going to make more sense. Yeah. I mean, I, I can't stand taking my own photos. I have to hire somebody to do that. <laughs> point i actually think it would be great to have somebody come in and um like in fact i thought this would be great if we got a group of professionals together and we just did it for each other where you write each other's bio because oh. you know, i think there's a certain part where like i write a very academic bio for myself because i don't want to you know be vain or and plus i don't even know what's important to other people you know right. <laughs> there's things that i thought that were really great or you know, that maybe other people don't care about as much or, and it's hard to write. Um, for me, it's hard to write uh, decorative language about myself, you know, like I'm never going to call myself something spectacular. I just can't do it. <laughs> I can't even think of a word. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's weird. It's weird writing for yourself. I mean, I, I did this as an exercise with students in my uh, pedagogy class this last spring where I said, all right, you know, now it's time for you. We were in the kind of business side of setting up your studio and stuff. And I said, okay, now your next assignment is to write a bio and, and, and turn it in. And, you know, the, the look on their face is like, we have to write about ourselves. It's like, well, how else is it going to be? Done? Right. And, right. and I didn't, I wanted them, I didn't want them to write about each other first and foremost, because they don't know enough about each other to do that. But to, to understand, you know, the, the challenge and having to write, the get past the awkwardness of writing about yourself first and foremost, and then trying to come up with the right kinds of things to say. It's just, it's really, it's, it's always been a bizarre experience for me to have to do that. And then when you're playing concerts and you hear somebody reading it and like, you're just, yeah. you know, <laughs> Oh my gosh. If I hear that I did that one more time, I'm just embarrassed. You know, like <laughs> time, to, time to change the bio. <laughs> yeah. So I think, I mean, I would imagine having a publicist at some point would be doing that for you, but even then they've got to get all this information from you. So, yeah. So when your recordings, how many recordings have you done? Um, I have three solo CDs. Um, one of which I recorded myself at home. And, um, and that's kind of a, an interesting project. I can talk about, I have a flute and guitar CD, and then I played on a chamber ensemble CD, uh, the Vivaldi uh, Concerto. And then I've done some just miscellaneous studio work for people. You know, usually I just think of it as two main solo CDs and the flute and guitar. Um, yeah. the, the, the do-it-yourself one was 
one that um, I was asked to do music for a Civil War documentary. And it was really neat to learn how to record and do all this stuff at my house. And um, when I was done, I was just kind of proud of the fact that I had done it. So I decided to burn off, you know, maybe 300 copies of that CD. And I was afraid to share it at first because it's not studio sound quality. But I think the idea of the music on the CD is pretty neat. And so I like sharing it with people. What kind of music was on there? Well, because the Civil War documentary, um, the idea was that they were going out to uh, Antietam Battlefield, which is really close to where I live, and contemporary day landscape shots of the um, the grounds. And they were going to have just subtitled explanations of what events occurred there. And so they wanted music to go with this, but they didn't want uh, Civil War songs. They basically wanted acoustic guitar music. And so I thought, well, wouldn't it be neat if I could find like classical, uh, essentially parlor pieces and etudes that would fit that general time period. And so I went on the Library of Congress, their online archives, and started just digging through music, trying to find anything. Really, I expanded it by about 20 years, like 1840 on up into the 1880s, trying to find, like, if you lived in this region during that era and you played guitar as a good amateur musician, what would you have played? And I thought, well, you would have played some Terega, you know, maybe um, it would have gotten here. You would have played uh, some William Foden. You would have played maybe Justin Holland. You might have played Madame Cindy Pratton uh, and just collecting music from. And, and again, I was a little loose with the years, but as contemporary players, you know, we play things that came before us as well. Right. So, um, so I ended up with just this collection of, of I call them miniatures, because it's a mix of etudes and parlor pieces. And, and it's this neat cross-section of, you know, European pieces and then American classical. And so it was really neat to then see that and hear it along with these really scenic landscapes of the Antietam battlefield. Yeah, that's a really interesting project. Is it is it available digitally too, or did you just release it on CD? No, it's digital. It's on uh, CD Baby, and it's actually I finally got brave enough to let it be on Spotify and streaming things as well. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I get so afraid to share these things. You know, and it takes me a while to build up the courage <laughs> to release them. Yeah, well, yeah. You know, I, I like doing the work itself and it's fascinating to me. And when you can have an historic element and, you know, the interconnectivity of all things and, you know, you know the same with, with the Reverie CD with almost every piece being an homage to somebody else on the CD. I just love that. And, you know, maybe that's an innate desire in me to connect as well. So, but then I'm always afraid at the end, you know, is it good enough? Will people like it? So it takes me a while. There, well, so much goes into all of the preparation and, you know, anybody who, who records um, hopefully has some kind of, you know, more personal kind of meaning right, of right. why they're doing it. And I, I, I can see that, you know, it's a, it's this, the sense of artistry is it's a, it can be really sensitive for a lot of us to, to, you know, to try to get other to put it out there in the world you know it's a very personal thing and to try to get it to try to display it in some way i can see how that can be uh nerve-wracking and and you know almost anxiety inducing in some ways because you just you don't you know it's it's a little hard to explain i, I get it i'm i i grew up as an introvert and you know shy and not wanting to not wanting to uh be in front of everybody all the time and uh the the whole idea of uh of displaying yourself is, uh, can be, uh, it's a little, it's a little off-putting for some of us. Right. Like, and right. I think that ties into a lot of why people get performance anxiety because they'd really rather not be <laughs> on stage. They, they're just content listening to themselves play. You know, <laughs> That's a great perspective. Yeah. So the reverie disc, um, that's the most recent one. Uh, actually that was before this, this 19th century oh. parlor. Um, I finished it okay. at the end of 2016 okay. and the, the parlor thing came up the year after reverie is what, you know, is I guess what you would call my most recent solo studio. It was actually done in a studio and a, a, a really nice studio, uh, 
thankfully that was pretty close to home. Um, great owner and who was also then the engineer. And, uh, you know, somebody with perfect pitch and who, if I, you know, it's self-produced. So in fact, in the future, I'm not sure if I'll do that again, <laughs> but, uh, you know, to have to sit and play and critique yourself while you play and then critique yourself after you've played is a little daunting. So it was great to have somebody else there who I could actually ask his opinion and say, what do you think of these two takes? And, you know, uh, really trust his opinion on things. And so that was wonderful. That's an important point. I mean, having, having a, a different set of ears listening, um, if you're, that's to me has been one of the biggest challenges of self-recording is how objective can you be, you know, you can drive yourself insane just trying to get the right take, you know, and if you, you have a producer or somebody who knows how to read the scores and knows what to listen for, um, chances are pretty high that you're doing fewer takes because they hear things differently and know when you've got it, you know, they know when you got this take and they can, you know, the power of editing and things like that. That's how these albums are mostly put together. You know, that's, that's where that producer or engineer can really play a role. Did you find that you had that, that kind of experience between the two kinds of albums you did between Reverie and this 19th century one? Well, the thing about the 19th century one was because I was at home, I was totally relaxed. You know what I mean? There's, there's no time constraint. Yeah. Um, I really didn't even have much of a deadline to be honest on because I had enough notice the initial point of the the CD. I could do take after take if I wanted. Who cared? You know, it was just me hit and delete, start over. Yeah. Um it, but it was a different process because I don't have pro tools. You know, um I have GarageBand. There's no crossfading in GarageBand if you know what that is. So, yeah. um you know that it wasn't like I could edit out a single note or something, you know, right. it was a lot of uh, chunking big sections of things, getting through them, listening. And then you run into the issue that if you do record, let's say a piece has an A and a B section and you decide to record section A stop and then do section B, um, you have to make sure the tempos are consistent, <laughs> you know, and, and, yeah. and you have to do them in the same sitting because it's your house and you might end up moving mics and the sound is slightly different. Point being, it was just a whole different set of considerations where in the studio, you know, I had to drive 45 minutes and get there and then you have to warm up and you're you know, warming up in front of somebody, no matter how nice they are, like it's still in front of somebody. It's not your chair. It's not your cup of coffee. It's not your environment. And so there was just a, a, a level of, uh, you talk about performance anxiety. It felt like a performance as opposed to me being home working on a project. Even though I can't emphasize enough how great this the studio owner was and that it was probably the most relaxed studio environment I could ask for. Uh, professional, but, you know, relaxed. And he was great. And let me do things over and not fuss at me because I'm being really picky. Because um, I've had that in the past, going to a studio and you know, or had somebody record you and, you know, you don't like the fact that there's some really, uh, I don't know, fret noise or something that, that you think is just distracting and you want to do something over and refinger something to try to get rid of it. Yeah. You know, like he was cool with that. And so when you go back and you, <laughs> he keeps it and then you listen to, you can't listen to it because that's all you hear when you hear that. that part. Here it comes. Yeah. <laughs> Right. So, um, yeah. Yeah. So it's a whole different experience. What was that like? How did you how did you get those kinds of jobs? I mean, I call it a job because I, I would imagine that. Well, I, I don't know. Maybe you were paid. Maybe you weren't. But it's studio work is a is all, isn't talked about a lot in classical guitar. 
but it is a it is an avenue another kind of place you can you can you know add to your career what was that like for you when you work with a lot of other musicians and uh you know a flute player uh, i have a friend who's a flute player who wrote a book and wanted to do a trail a book trailer and so uh, she asked me to come record a piece for her to be done for that book trailer so that's one type of example but then the other example is the studio where I recorded Reverie. Um, you know, I got to know the owner and he got a really intimate view of what my particular skill set is and how I play and what I can and cannot do. And so he might get in a singer songwriter who has some songs but wants to add inst other instrumentation to it. And maybe they want a classical guitar intro. And he'll send me, you know, maybe a chart with chords and I have to come up with what it is I'm going to play. Um, he himself recorded an album uh, of his arrangements and he actually had something specific that he wanted me to do um, that was classical guitar. Other times it's been steel string, like acoustic guitar kind of strumming uh, stuff, you know, to lay down a... a you know, something that might even be kind of buried in the mix, but just adds support to the overall piece. Um, so the, I'd say probably number one, it's that connection with a particular studio. And again, going back to your professionalism and your skill set and personality and saying, okay, this is an easy person to work with. I know they'll be able to do this in this many takes. <laughs> and, uh, and so that work has come from there. And compensation for that varies. You know, I might be willing to trade that out for studio time, actually. Yeah, yeah. And that works too. I, I just think that's that's such a cool avenue that we, I haven't talked to anybody about yet. And you're the first person that's actually even mentioned it. I'm just, I would cool. imagine other people have done it. Um, but it's certainly something that guitarists should consider if they, um, you know, if they have the right kind of network. Let's switch gears and talk about some of the research you've done because several years ago um we saw each other again at a gfa convention and you were giving a lecture um can you talk about the research around that lecture sure that lecture uh was based on my doctoral thesis which is called ida presti as a solo performer and composer of works for solo guitar and that project grew out of many years of collecting materials about women guitarists uh, in 2006, I was invited to do a lecture at the Bethlehem Guitar Festival, just about women in guitar, uh, just a very general lecture. And it wasn't even just classical. I talked about uh, jazz and rock and philanthropy and education, all kinds of stuff. Um, but even prior to that, for me, just being in any music history class and having a, an anthology or textbook, you know, called whatever it's called, survey of Western music or whatever it might be, looking in the index and seeing Hildegard von Bingen, Clara Schumann, and Fanny Mendelssohn, and thinking, come on, like this book covers a thousand years of music, and you're talking about these three ladies, and two of them you're talking about in context to a man. So you're talking about Clara in context of Robert and Fanny in context of her brother. So to me, it was just like, well, duh, like this just isn't complete. You know, I, I hate to say it that simply, but it's just, it's not complete. So I just always got, and plus it wasn't just women, it was guitar. Like I had to open any music history book and look for any keyword, or we call it a keyword now, but you know, in the index, look for lute and look for guitar and look for Spain. I'd always look for Spain. And, uh, you know, rarely ever see any of those words in an index. So um, anyway, that's that's where it started. And then I had just really supportive private teachers when I was an undergraduate, you know, and studying a little bit of jazz. My teacher said, oh, you got to go listen to Emily Remler. She's fantastic, you know, or, um, you know, Cheryl Bailey or whoever it was, you know, uh, check out these women players. Because I was always like the only girl, you know, in the group. And then at Shenandoah, Dr. Kaluta had a picture of Ida Presti actually hanging in his in his teaching room. He'd always just reference her and you know, they, they recognized that I was often the only girl and they were really supportive. Then I got opportunities because they knew that I was interested and I was collecting materials and articles and recordings. And the Bethlehem thing came up and that was really great. 
And then through the years, I just continued doing that. It might be something as simple as being at a GFA convention, going through the vendors, like the sheet music vendors, and just basically buying anything that had a woman's name in the title. Mm. Yeah. So I'd end up with pieces by Dale Cavanaugh, you know, Amelia Julian, just all this stuff. And, um, you know, as much as I could afford, I would just buy them. And then uh, collecting magazines, classical guitar magazines with Ida Presti or Louise Walker, whoever on the cover. That led to, you know, determining a doctoral thesis. And I had planned to write about a few different women, but, you know, you really have to hone in on a particular subject. And I, um, at the time, you know, now I've studied these women to much greater length and they're all just truly phenomenal beings. Um, but Ida Presti to me was just straight up undeniable. Like there's no way you could argue the validity of what I'm doing here because this lady was tops and not tops for a woman or tops for a man. She was just straight up great. And this is going to be my topic. And even that was too big a topic because she had this fantastic, obvious, you know, duo career with her husband, Alexander Lagoya. But there'd already been a good paper done on that. And those recordings seemed abundantly out there. So I decided not to focus on the uh, duo aspect, but just focus on her as a soloist. The recordings I could find of her playing alone, um, try to understand from the resources I could collect, what was her education? How did she get into it? How could that possibly influence uh, her playing, and then how does that influence the pieces that she wrote? How would that influence us in trying to play her pieces? And then can you see any of those traits in things that were written in her homage? Hmm. And so uh, that's that's basically the paper. And so you gave you gave a presentation at GFA. Was this was this also featured in a magazine? So there was a follow up article uh, I did for Soundboard called "Recordings to Revisit." which was about her solo recordings, which had been released at that time on, a, on yet another CD. Um, I got to write an article for their children's magazine, Prodigies, and then uh, actually give quite a few lectures about Ida Presti, and then that also giving lectures that were survey of several women. It, it was pretty, pretty awesome. It was a great honor to be able to talk about somebody like that who's just such an important person. She's a legend. I did not know her. I didn't study with her. Um, you know, there are people in the world far closer to her. For me, it just felt like an honor to get to do that. And if I could help in any way to share her legacy with people, I thought, well, maybe I can do this by promoting her compositions because not everybody gets to give a lecture, but you might get to play a concert. And if you play a piece and her name's on that concert program, or it's, you know, on the program because it was written in honor of her, like the Poulenc Sarabon, which a lot of people play. But I don't even think a lot of people knew it was, you know, dedicated to her. Right. Um, I thought, well, this is my avenue for doing that. And um, it's been humbling because, you know, she was special, is special to a lot of people. You've continued to give the, uh, the same or similar lectures at, at other uh, festivals and things? Yeah, I just came back from the Toronto uh, Guitar Weekend, which was incredible. I met the nicest people there. And this great uh, man who I've known uh, distantly through the years, Jack Silver, who um, has a record label and releases these historic recordings. And he writes great liner notes. And so some of the initial things I knew about people like Maria Luisa Nito or Louise Walker um, either came from his liner notes or things that Jean Duarte had, uh, John Duarte had written. And uh, so, yeah, Toronto, a great group of people, really enthusiastic listeners. And um, I'm so glad I got to do that. Yeah, it's an interesting, I mean, it's beyond an interesting topic because she she lived for such a short period of time. And from what the little that I knew about her when I was in school, um, it was, I was just blown away by her, her music and also knowing of how good she was as a player. And so I think, I think it's great that you, you, uh, did the dissertation and have continued to, uh, kind of educate, educate people 
at these different uh, festivals and things. So I, I, I hope you continue to do it. Are you, do you have any plans to like write a book about it at all or anything like that? Actually, I've been thinking about uh, not writing a book about Ida Presti. There's already, you know, a, a wonderful biography um, mm. out there. But I, I have been thinking because I've been writing little essays about various, you know, not dissertations, but uh, or theses, but just essays uh, about various women in guitar history. And, yeah. uh, you know, expanding these lectures to to talk about these folks. And I thought it would be great maybe to put all that down. I've started doing it in terms of a blog post and some Facebook posts, um, mm-hmm. but to kind of do it officially because, you know, I get emails from people and I, again, I feel so honored that this happens, that people find out that, that I know something about these topics and they reach out to me asking for recommendations for music for their students to play by some yeah. of these women or, um, you know, further reading or whatever it might be. And it feels so cool to be in that chain of, of people. Uh, again, not something I counted on, um, but it, it's just really nice to see people interested. So it, I think it would be good to just have something published that you could yeah. share with people and just say, here, have this just on your shelf. And when somebody asked, you know, um, but also I should point out, you know, in the Summerfield book that a lot of people own, there are entries about some of these ladies. But yeah, it would be cool to to publish something. I think you should. I think you totally should. That would that's a that'd be a book on my shelf for sure. <laughs> quite a few festivals, right? I mean, are you doing lectures and performances at these? At these, It's a mix. Sometimes I'm invited to do a lecture. Um, uh, some of them I'm invited to, uh, you know, give solo recitals or do that and do a lecture. Um, yeah. yeah. So that, and then also just different concert series uh, and, and just general lecture series, often libraries. Um, I'll go in and, and that's kind of fun, you know, to share these stories with, just uh, non-guitar audiences, just general music enthusiasts. In fact, I, I'm getting ready to do, uh, I'm still preparing the lecture, but imagine the music appreciation version of classical guitar history, like in an hour or less. <laughs> so, uh-huh. right, and I'm calling it the art of classical guitar. And the idea is that um, I'll introduce people to the great players and the great compositions and tell a few stories and it'll be inclusive. I'll talk about Segovia and I'll talk about Presti, you know, I'll I'll talk about Louise Walker and just, you know, uh, all these folks combined and and share the, the best music and try to really expand the audience for classical guitar into just the broader music loving community, you know, if that is in fact something that needs done. I guess the reason I'm asking is because it seems like another um, unventured kind of avenue for or that guitarists maybe not think about very much, but the idea of, of attending festivals as a lecturer or um, giving some kind of class or workshop. Um, again, is this something that, that is just formulated over the years because of your, your network and because of your reputation or these, or these things you're seeking it was uh, a natural development of either my teaching or my schooling. So maybe you have a teacher, you know, I had Dr. Kaluta who very clearly knew what work I was doing and might tell somebody about it. And they say, Oh, you should come do that at our festival. You know, that, that has happened. Uh, I have openly contacted series, you know, and like, especially libraries, I'll reach out and say, Hey, I have these things and here's the benefit of it. Here's what it involves. It's interactive. You know, I don't just talk, I play and I do all these different things. And they might think, yeah, that fits great with our programming. Sometimes it's pre-concert lectures for a series. And and that comes again through reputation. Like people know that I'm studious (laughs) and, uh, and that I like, 
you know, writing and, and researching. And um, the other side of that, though, is that, um, you know, you'll often hear people talking about they started playing guitar when they were five or six and, you know, uh, they've done it their whole life. Well, I actually started public speaking at that age. And so, yeah, you know, a lot of people are afraid of public speaking and um, I'm not. So for me, lecturing works out because I'm just genuinely excited about the topic and I want to communicate and share with people. And I think that comes through. So so that's another element of it that I, I think I have a predisposition to that type of work. But yes, like if you have an area of study and you put together a presentation and you have something that you think to offer to people, yeah, there's GFA, there's all kinds of other festivals, you know, that have a variety of programming. Maybe you have some great workshop on ornamentation, you know, and you can solve that problem for everybody that they've been trying to figure out. Um, it, it's a neat way to contribute, I think. So a lot of, a lot of, a lot of times it's it's a an application process, but maybe more times you can you can just simply reach out and and make a proposal. Yeah, and yeah, and actually have a proposal. Like send a write up, a description, you know, yeah. send a really short bio, you know, that initial thing, and um, and really talk about how you're going to engage people. You know, not just okay. I have all these credentials. I know all this stuff. You know, it's really, how is this going to benefit the listener? What are they going to walk away with? And so I think that's an important part of it too. Do you offer the kinds of like coaching on those things for students or, or anybody come to you asking like, how do I do this? Uh, not a lot. Uh, in fact, it's been something I've been thinking about lately because I write grant proposals. Yeah. Unlike some folks have heard, um, I actually don't hate it. You know, I, I think it's interesting. <laughs> Yeah. I, my favorite pastime, but um, I'm not afraid of it, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And I took arts management classes in college as electives where I learned what a board of directors is, what is a nonprofit structure, what is a five-year plan. I've had to write them before. And, um, you know, I actually think about grant proposals, at least some of the government ones that I've done, you know, arts councils and state arts councils, those kind of things. They remind me of a syllabus. And that you have, you know, your your organization's mission statement, I think of that kind of like a course description. Like, obviously, yeah. we need to know what the point of the class is. And then you have objectives, the things that you're trying to do. And then you have act activities. In grant proposals, sometimes those objectives are called goals. You know, the student will be able to, <laughs> with, with our work, we will have done. And then, again, this is a loose analogy. And afterwards, you have your topical outline, which is the activities that are going to get that mission statement accomplished. And the same with the grant proposal. You have your activities. Then you have to have some type of evaluation to judge whether or not you are successful. And um, you have to have evidence of your work. So you submit work samples. I don't know that we talked about this, but I have a lot of teaching experience, um, especially college classroom teaching experience. So... I approach these grant proposals in that kind of way, but then those grant proposals are reflective of just organizing your group and really making sure these things have been defined. That can then be applied to your own career as a performing artist. You know, when I had to write a five-year plan for a class, I actually applied that not to a nonprofit, but I applied it to a friend's uh, Rush tribute band and I applied it to a wedding group I was in, just this process of going through a five-year plan, truly writing out, not just saying in your head, but writing out your goals, what it is you're hoping to accomplish. And so because I've done that and I enjoy that work and I enjoy helping people, I have been thinking about, you know, maybe my teaching might evolve to where I actually get to give those kind of workshops yeah. and uh, maybe further my own formal credentials in that area. Yeah. I think, I think it's a great idea. I mean, it, it, I think being a guitarist is, is a dynamic, um, format, you know, like you, if you're going to, you can be a performer, you can be a teacher, but so many times there's so many other strengths that we have that can be beneficial to us in, in terms of trying to make money and, and get by. And, I think, you know, I'm, I'm a proponent of trying to find those strengths and use them to your advantage. And it sounds like 
you know, this is another area for you that you could, you could easily just take on, you know, a, a small consulting kind of thing where you're, you know, you're helping out the guitarists who, who were like, how do I do this? You know, or I, I need to, you know, organize some, because seriously, there's so many of us out there that don't even know the first step and what, what a five-year plan looks like, you know, much less how to get through the year, you know what I mean? And so, finding those kinds of uh those inner strengths and and uh uh kinds of things that we know that um i th i'm a proponent of that you know like guitarists should be kind of in a way exploiting everything they they are, that is strong about them uh and their their knowledge and what they can bring in because it's to me it's all about this kind of central survival as a guitarist right like yeah consulting on grant writing isn't necessarily playing the guitar but if it supports your ability to be a guitarist then then there you go it's you know you've got you've won you know like it doesn't it, it means you're not having to go apply for a job at starbucks <laughs> you know which there's nothing wrong with but if you if, if that's not what your goal was then you know you're trying to stick to this kind of central component of of moving along Do you know what i mean it's actually funny to have this conversation with you because i don't I don't know that I've said those things out loud before. And it's, um, I didn't look at that, that idea as even uh, a working thing. I just looked at it as like, wouldn't that be cool to do like to help people in that, yeah. you know, in that way. And um, if I could, you know, again, I'm not in any way proposing that I'm some expert on this or that I truly went to school for it. I've just learned some practical things along the way. And it would be neat to, you know, have the chance to share them with other people, even if it meant, you know, having uh, a workshop of fo fellow pro professionals where you all just help each other, you know, yeah. and, and really share that information with one another. Um, and, and that's really the thing I keep coming back to is just wanting to, that sense of community and, um, you know, being part of being part of that, helping one another. It's, it's why I like your podcast. It's so interesting that you invite all these diverse guests and you pick something up from each one. Like, wow, I never thought to do that. Or, wow, that does make sense to have a, a schedule each week of, you know, how you're going to contact people and, and some of the resources you've presented. I have actually then gone and found those websites and those books. And, you know, it's, it's pretty great. For me, it's, I've just always been interested in all of these facets of things. And the challenge for me, I think now is actually getting focus. You know, I, I feel like I've been in a whirlwind of activity. I'm grateful for it. I'm grateful for every last experience. But when it comes down to it, I want to play really beautiful music on my instrument. And what's going to let me do that now? And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's an evolution. Sure. Well, you've, you've now contributed to the podcast and providing you've provided a lot of really good stuff i know people are going to take away from um we should probably end it there we're just getting uh, past an hour so candace thank you so much for being on the show today this was this was awesome you've, you've this was great thank you for including me i'm i'm honored i appreciate it